This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Hello, everyone. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm Asia Economics Editor. I'm here in Hong Kong, and I'm chatting remotely with Neil Ferguson, eminent historian, senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institute, and intellectual omnivore and prolific author. He's here today to talk with us about his latest book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. Professor, it's a real pleasure. Uh, Welcome to The Exchange. Thank you, Pete. It's great to be with you. Just um, for those who haven't read the book, it's fair to describe it as a long catalog of human disaster, man-made, some natural. Um, What you really hone in on is how humans manage to make bad situations worse. And what's what's one of your really interesting points, I think, is is that you, you argue we shouldn't go after necessarily blame the elites. Instead, you are inclined to put more analytical force into looking at middle management, you know, the bureaucracies at CDC at Wuhan. You've spent a lot of time analyzing how NASA created the the Challenger explosion. And just at this point, at this moment, um, looking at what's happened up to now, what would you say is the common institutional flaw or the middle management error that caused so many governments to get this pandemic so wrong? Well, let me make it clear that I'm not in any way exonerating or excusing uh, the, the populist leaders who, who did, by and large, a shockingly bad job. That This is not a, an argument that, that says Donald Trump uh, uh, was uh, an excellent president in 2020 or that Boris Johnson aced being prime minister. The, the, the key argument I, I want to make is twofold. Firstly, it, it doesn't seem to me that there's an enormous difference in performance between countries that had populist uh, leaders and countries that did not. For example, Peru had higher excess mortality than almost any country, much worse than Brazil, but Pr- Peru did not have a, a Bolsonaro figure in, in power. In fact, power in Peru is heavily concentrated in the in the Congress, the national parliament being, being president is a pretty contingent business. There was lots of excess mortality in European countries that had much less populist leaders than than Britain, Boris Johnson, Belgium, for example, uh, which had no populist leader, whatever. So I part one of my argument is it's hard to see a really clear correlation between having a populist and having significantly bad excess mortality. More importantly, I think if we tell ourselves that it would all have gone much better in the United States or Britain or Brazil or India with different leaders, and that in the US we fixed the problem because we've elected Joe Biden, we'll be missing what really went wrong last year. And what went wrong was further down the chain of command than the decisions taken at the very top. This was something that Dominic Cummings was arguing in London just last week in his testimony to a parliamentary committee, he was basically saying that it, it it was partly Boris Johnson, but it was also 
the civil servants. It was the public health experts, scientists that were consulted by the government. It was a systemic failure. What was the nature of the failure? Well, if we're trying to ask why Western countries had much higher excess mortality than, say, Taiwan or South Korea, or for that matter, New Zealand, I think a part of the answer was that there was no real attempt to ramp up testing at the beginning. Part of the answer is that at the same time, there was no attempt to do contact tracing. Uh, part of the answer is that there was no real a, a attempt to protect the elderly who were clearly the vulnerable group, especially in elderly care homes. And a part of the answer is that there were no really effective and enforced quarantines. Those were the things that explained a lot of the death in 2020. And it's very hard to trace those failures back to the uh, the men, and it was mostly men at the top. So I, I think we need to recognize that what really went wrong in 2020 was a systemic failure of public health bureaucracy. It happened whether you were a populist or not. It happened in most Western countries. And we know that it wasn't necessary and inevitable because there were Asian countries that, that got it right. That's the essence of the argument I'm making. And there's a broader point, since doom is really a general history of catastrophe, that this is true of most disasters, that while the buck technically stops at the top, ultimate responsibility lies with the president, as Harry Truman said, when disaster strikes, the point of failure tends to be further down the, the bureaucracy or chain of command. You spend a fair amount of time analyzing one particular aspect, specifically the transmission of the fake news that caused people to misunderstand how to deal with the pandemic, vast political arguments over whether you should wear a mask, whether the vaccines work, whether you should take malarial treatment, <laughs> whether you should apply um, whatever bleach, people, all these quack cures that were out there. And you spent some time analyzing what that is. And I mean, I just want you to talk a little bit more about it because this is a very big issue, right? It's not just related to the pandemic, but also to politics and kind of how the Western democracies interact with the authoritarian states, particularly in Russia and now China. Well, my last book, The Square and the Tower, argued that there was a fundamental problem with the public sphere that had arisen, particularly because of the way that the network platforms like Facebook and, and Google had come to dominate uh, the internet. Uh, the problem was that these, these companies had an incentive based on their, their business model, the selling of ads, to maximize user engagement. And the way to do that, it turned out, was in fact to promote and disseminate fake news and extreme views. And this was obvious in 2016. It was one of the reasons that the election of that year was so surprising to many people. So I, I wrote the square in the tower saying, look, we have to address this. In particular, we have to address the weird asymmetry where these enormous technology companies, these network platforms, are, are under the strange regulatory arrangement that dates back to the 1990s, simultaneously in really able to disseminate crazy stuff with impunity, but also able to engage in censorship with impunity. It's a wonderful position to be in. And this is, a, this is something we could have fixed over the last four or five years. We didn't do it. The Trump administration tried, right? Like, so there was this ban, clumsily worded ban on WeChat, for example, which is this, this tool that the this ubiquitous communications tool in China and people overseas have to use it to communicate with people in China and it censors, it propagates propaganda, fake news, all these things. And there was this attempt to go after it and it kind of stumbled. There was a problem, but no really coherent strategy for addressing it. Going after WeChat or, or TikTok for that matter 
didn't really go to the heart of the problem, which was that the U.S. technology companies have this catch-22 type relationship. Namely, they can be tech platforms with no publishing responsibilities when it suits them. But when it suits them to be publishers, they're entirely uh, exempt from any First Amendment obligations. And this is a completely inconsistent state of affairs. These companies are far too important a part of the public sphere today to be able to claim, oh, we're just private companies, our, our user agreements, our terms and conditions are whatever we want them to be. And and I think we've we've got to address this problem because until we do, there's this giant engine out there on the internet for disseminating conspiracy theories and, and all kinds of fake news, uh, while at the same time engaging in arbitrary political censorship, culminating bizarrely in the cancellation of the president of the United States back in, in January. So I, I felt, you know, when I was writing my last book that we would pay a price for this, pay a price for not fixing this. And we have done, because what happened last year was that these same technology companies were, were super spreaders of fake information, of false information on everything. And you already mentioned it, from the nature of the virus itself to potential remedies or therapies for the virus hydroxychloroquine was only one of the, the quack remedies that, that was promoted on online. And then worst of all, these same companies have, have unquestionably promoted anti-vax sentiment, encouraging people to be wary of, of vaccines that are actually very safe and highly efficacious. So this is a terrible trail of disaster that has been created. Worse still, the companies which could have used the data that they possess to public ends by allowing contact tracing to be done early on, positively ran away from that, that opportunity by punting contact tracing to state governments, which were never going to be able to do it. So I think going after Chinese tech companies was to miss the point. The real problem lies with US tech companies that have vast power and no responsibility and apparently no legal liability either. I think this began to dawn on Republicans too late when they realized that Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act was a problem. But by the time they'd figured this out, their their time was was running out. And so that, that problem has not been fixed. Instead, what's happening is that we're going after antitrust actions. Those will not solve the fundamental problems that I'm, I'm talking about. Ultimately, it's still at the discretion of Mark Zuckerberg how far Facebook groups are super spreaders of, of false information. And uh, uh, he may claim to be uh, at some level constrained by a new Supreme Court that he's created for Facebook. But I mean, if you think that's an adequate constraint, I have a pandemic preparedness plan to sell you. Yeah, no, I think I'm on that. <laughs> I agree. One, one of the other, just to pivot to another theme that I think is important to discuss, and, and you've written about this multiple platforms. One, one of the problems or one of the ways you can make a crisis work worse, of course, is by overreacting to it, right? Um, and you lay out a long list of people who looked at a problem that wasn't actually as big of a problem as they thought and made things worse. And one of the interesting examples economically you look at is the uh, the Eisenhower recession of 57, 57 during you, which you had this Asian flu. And, and you seem to look at that as more of a, a, a better parallel for what's happening now, albeit it was less, less lethal. Per your description, Americans more or less went about their business. They took 100,000 deaths, I think. There was a recession, although there was a lot more at play there. And then you contrast that rather 
you give that a high grade and, and you seem to suggest that like in the way the Americans react to lockdown and now with the, the stimulus package that these are going to do, I mean, if I'm presenting this right, that these are these are overreactions, that this is this is overkill and it's going to do more harm than good. Can you lay that out for us a bit? Yeah, I got to tread warily here because there, there are a bunch of misleading kinds of factors out there in, in the discussion as if there was some option to just carry on and get to herd immunity by by natural infection. There were those people who made that argument last year. This was kind of a crazy argument. It would clearly have resulted in very high levels of mortality if we had just sort of powered through it. But that wasn't really the alternative that we we had. The right way, as I already mentioned, of dealing with this pandemic was early detection and early action, testing, tracing, trying to limit the spread. By the middle of March, when we kind of blown that opportunity and realized that we actually had massive nationwide uh, community spread, didn't have many good options. Uh, now, we know that uh, that lockdowns did some good. Uh, we can see that because there was a need to, to limit mobility at that point. But we can also see that where countries or states didn't do lockdowns, people limited mobility anyway. There was significant adaptation of behavior. In fact, there's a great paper by Austin Goolsby that shows that there was a big decline in mobility before shelter-in-place orders were imposed. So even if we hadn't done lockdowns, it's, it's clear that life would not have continued as normal. There would have been a lot of social distancing. There would have been a lot of reduced mobility, even without orders to that effect. So that's, I think, an important point to establish. So the key point I want to make is that what we did in response to this public health crisis uh, went beyond uh, what you might have called a reasonable amount of, of limitation of mobility. And it, it extended into crazy restrictions like the ones in California on uh, public parks and, and beaches. They, those were closed. That was ridiculous because there was clearly very little outdoor spread going on. Even from the earliest studies out of China, it was obvious that not much uh, COVID-19 spreading went on outdoors. So what happened in the lockdown phase back in March, April, was that a lot of superfluous restrictions were imposed. I think it was madness to keep the Californian public schools closed for an entire year. That, that was not necessary. It was clear that the public schools did not need to be shut for so long. Private schools opened. It was perfectly easy to keep them functioning, as has been the case in many Asian countries. You just had to have some restrictions, uh, but that was doable. So I think there was overkill in the sense that we did some things in the lockdown period that were unnecessary and almost certainly had an adverse uh, impact on public health and and public well-being. Okay, take us back to 1957. Comparably serious, though not quite as bad pandemic. Right now, we've, we've killed a larger proportion of the world's population with COVID than were killed by the Asian flu. But only just, it's only in the last couple of months that it's overtaken the 57-58 pandemic. So comparable challenge, certainly closer to uh, our experience in 1918-19, which was much, much worse. And the Eisenhower administration says, well, we can't stop this spreading. Uh, we can't force people to work from home because they didn't have the internet then, obviously. So working from home really wasn't an option. So they just put all their efforts into finding a vaccine and life goes on. There is excess mortality. It's not confined to the elderly. There were teenagers dying in significant numbers in 57. Uh, in fact, excess mortality was quite a, a pronounced amongst teenagers. Uh, but life went on to a really remarkable extent. 
And one can't really see the 57-58 pandemic in the economics data. As you rightly say, there was a mild recession, but it had nothing to do with the pandemic. So I, I'm not saying that we could have done that or should have done that. This was a very different kind of pandemic and it posed distinctive problems. But what I am saying is that the economic impact of our lockdowns was really huge and greater in many ways than the public health threat necessitated. Moreover, we've subsequently taken measures that really have run the opposite risk, and that is the risk of overheating the economy on the way out. I saw the recent inflation figures, so it looks like it looks something underway. Let's let's pivot to China, which is part of the inflation story and also a country you and I both write a great deal about. In your book, you mentioned the idea of uh, the ideas of Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and specifically you talk about his idea of anti-fragility, um, which is the idea that some systems, uh, societies are actually strengthened by by a crisis. And I mean, that strikes me as like a really critical issue right now because different countries and different governments are reading who who won COVID and scoring it quite differently, especially in China, you know, where you had this country that a lot of people blame its fumbled first response for letting this become a pandemic. Subsequently, they had this big lockdown, they got it under control. Now their their vaccination rate is picking back up. And, you know, in terms of the economy, they, they restarted production and they managed to actually seize export market share. Um, so from their perspective, I think, and from the perspective of a lot of ordinary Chinese people, that system has been validated. And they look at the United States, you know, this, this, the way the country ripped itself in half over whether you wear masks or not, the Black Lives Matter protests, the storming of Capitol Hill. And they see, you know, a country in, in permanent decline, like a kind of Oswald Spengler like end the Western civilization thing. And you yourself seem somewhat sympathetic to that in some of the things I've read, that, that like the U.S. has kind of lost faith and, and confidence in itself. And then there's this sort of malaise inside the society that will not be fixed, you know, by replacing the president, for example. But you seem quite reluctant to, to score China as winning from this and the U.S. losing. Well, it's certainly the tempting narrative. And a lot of people went down uh, that road last year. The U.S. has screwed this up. China has got it right. This is a, a win for authoritarianism. And, and, and the U.S. is clearly a waning power. And I can see that in a lot of Chinese discussions, not only amongst intellectuals, but on social media, it's quite a widely perceived uh, verdict on, on 2020. There are a couple of reasons I think it's wrong. Firstly, the United States has a history of, uh, of doing the right thing when all the other options have been exhausted. And that was Winston Churchill's famous joke about the United States. And, and you know, it's kind of true because we, we really, really screwed just about everything up until we got to vaccinations. And it turns out that the Western vaccines, and I kind of tried to predict this when I was writing Doom, uh, are a lot better than the alternatives, including the Chinese vaccines. And we also managed, it turns out, to distribute them really pretty effectively. So doing badly in the first phase of a pandemic can really be forgiven if you get the most important thing right. And the most important thing is indeed vaccines. Uh, the, the second thing which I think is really important is that, that China has not really been as unscathed by this disaster as some commentators would like to believe. First, I think that there's been enormous reputational damage done around the world. Attitudes to China and particularly to the Chinese uh, leadership have become far more negative, not only in the United States, but right across the developed world, as well as in, 
in India and other Asian countries. And I think this is a very significant setback, actually, for China's uh, geopolitical ambitions. It, it makes the task of the Biden administration significantly easier to reassemble alliances that were given quite a stress test under Trump's America First strategy. The other thing I'd say is that China's not as unscathed internally as might uh, meet the eye of the superficial observer. The, the impact on the economy is, is really quite a profound one. I think that the high growth rates projected last year by the IMF and others are, are going to turn out to have been way off, uh, that the Chinese have really brought down their growth projections uh, for the year. And then you have to add into this the increasingly negative news about China's demographic trajectory, which I don't believe they'll be able to fix with a, a new three-child policy. So my sense is that although superficially the US sucked and China rocked in 2020, the reality is in fact very different. And from the vantage point of mid-2021, the US is doing what it's often done in the past, which is to bounce back from an initial fiasco and do some significant self-repair. Is there a lot still to be done? Yes. Are we facing what really went wrong last year? Not yet. Are we telling ourselves fairy stories that it would all have been fine if only Uncle Joe had been president a year ago? Yes. So the US has still got a long way to go to really sort itself out. But I, I frankly still bet on the US over a centralized totalitarian system like the People's Republic of China's. Because in the end, I think those systems are inherently bound to fail in the way that that it did in December of 2019 and January of 2020. This was a mega Chernobyl, and it had many of the common features of the Chernobyl disaster. And it told us that at heart, the Chinese system has the same pathologies, despite its obviously superior economic performance to the Soviet Union. One of the things that I am worried about, and, and you worry about this a little bit, is you know the next disaster to come. And you talk about this... Uh, the, the risk of a, a, a more serious military conflict between the United States and, and China, and that's something that's on everybody's mind. You know, my question, looking at Chinese behavior, is whether they've come to a conclusion. I mean, everybody has seen them losing this popularity contest, right? And they they went and signed a, a you know an investment agreement with the European Union, and then like blew it up basically the same week, I think. And I mean, I'm, I'm just a little worried that the con the conclusion that Beijing has reached is not yours, but basically we've been validated. And also like this whole thing about soft power, that's just an illusion. What matters is hard power and we have it. What matters is our economy, our, our dominance of supply chains. You know, we just went through a, a trade war, our surplus as big as ever. We love our export sector now. And so we don't have to be nice. You know, we're just strong and everybody is just wrapping their heads around this fact. And in the meantime, our opponents are psychologically weak. And when it comes down to, you know, you're a historian of the of World War One, And I'm just wondering how dangerous you think this moment is where you have these two very powerful states that perceive things so differently. I think it's very appropriate to be concerned because history is about pattern recognition. And one of the patterns that one, one can recognize over the centuries is that major conflicts happen when two great powers miscalculate and misread the other side's capabilities and intentions. I think the perception in Beijing that the United States is a declining power, that its age of primacy is over, and that the 
moment for China to assert itself has arrived is a familiar one to anybody who studied Wilhelmine Germany, or for that matter, the, the periods uh, in the mid-20th century when uh, totalitarian regimes thought that their hour had arrived and that the US or the United Kingdom were washed up. I also think that the mistake that, that is familiar in, in the history of, of Western powers is the failure to deter. The great mistake, and this is a central point of my book, Doom, that, that Britain made twice, was that it failed to deter Germany and its allies, and yet nevertheless went to war and, and defeated uh, Germany. This failure to deter in 1914 and again in 1939 is, is something that the United States must be very careful not to repeat. At the moment, we have on paper commitments, commitments to Taiwan in particular, uh, and, and commitments to remain the preeminent power in the Indo-Pacific region, as it's now called. But are those commitments credible? I think not. I think in reality, the temptation for China's leadership must be to expedite the, uh, the move against Taiwan that is clearly in Xi Jinping's mind in the belief that the moment has uh, has come where the US no longer has the capability to reverse uh, a swift amphibious uh, invasion or to un unblock a blockade. I think we're entering a very dangerous period uh, in which the Chinese think that they have a window of opportunity. The Russians are probably encouraging this because this is exactly what Putin thought uh, when he went into Ukraine and he got away with it. Uh, the West is weak, they won't fight. The most you have to worry about is sanctions and even that will be somewhat superficial. That's the kind of thinking that I believe could produce a Taiwan crisis. Now, I think we've been in Cold War II for some time. Uh, it's only gradually that the Western elites are coming to realize this, but I suspect that the Western public has already got there. But this will be different from Cold War I in a, in a couple of respects. Uh, one is the greater economic interpenetration, far greater than was ever true with the Soviet Union. But that doesn't prevent Cold War II from happening, as some people seem to think. Actually, it makes Cold War II easier for China. Because believe me, espionage is much easier when you have hundreds of thousands of your people in the other side than it was for the Soviets. Uh, and so we have a massive problem of penetration and an understanding of our vulnerabilities, particularly in the realm of, of cybersecurity that should really worry us. The war of the future will involve a massive cyber attack on the United States. If you don't realize that, you have not been paying attention because the trailers have been playing in recent weeks in multiple ways. So I think we're heading for a very different kind of war from the wars we're used to. This war will not be like Iraq or Afghanistan. This will be a great power conflict in which all technological domains will be in play. Jim Stavridis has just published a novel in which he imagines this escalating into a nuclear conflict. That is not fanciful. That is a serious uh, scenario. The only difference I have with him is that I think it's a much near, much more near-term scenario than his date 2034 implies. So for all these reasons, I'm very concerned that Cold War II could be like Cold War I, hot. Remember Korea, 1950? That was a pretty hot conflict. And it's very easy for me to foresee the same kind of escalation to hot war happening over Taiwan, which right now combines uh, the Berlin crisis, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and potentially a Middle Eastern crisis all in one island. That sounds terrifying. It is. Okay. Well, um, on a more general note, so one of my friends is also a, a professor of history 
One time he shared with me an amusing uh, headline from The Onion, a satirical magazine you're probably familiar with. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, Historians politely remind nation to check what happened in the past before making any big decisions. (laughs) And obviously the joke is that people don't, that you write a book laying out the theory of catastrophe and you make suggestions on how governments could do it differently. But human behavior, you know, suggests that, that they do not take these lessons aboard very frequently. Does history show that historians can make a difference at times like these? It does. I argued with Graham Allison a few years ago that there should be a council of historical advisors. We didn't really expect this to be acted upon, but there's a council of economic advisors, and I'm not sure that we would have been uh, much worse at our job had we been there at the beginning of 2020 to say, hey, this is a pandemic, here's what's likely to happen. The most impressive leader of the Western world in the last century, I think most people would agree was Winston Churchill. And one of the things that's striking about Churchill was how historically minded he was uh, and the way in which he was prepared to be deeply unpopular in the 1930s by pointing out quite correctly that Hitler's ambitions posed a profound mortal threat to the British Empire and indeed to Western civilization. So if one thinks about leaders who've been uh, good at their jobs, an awareness of history does seem to have been one of the, the traits that the, the great leaders brought to bear on the, the challenges they face. We've run the experiment of leaders entirely ignorant of history, and I don't think it's gone brilliantly well. So my, my sense is that we, we just need to make history more integral to the ways in which decision makers are trained. Part of the problem is that academic history has gone wildly off the rails, uh, has veered off into a kind of uh, identity politics that is of no use to decision makers. And that's why I've been proposing that we need applied history as a distinct discipline. Perhaps it needs to be in distinct departments where the goal is to use historical knowledge to help decision makers, whether they're in the public or private sector, to do their jobs better. And this seems to be to be eminently doable if we can only get uh, both the the people who run public policy schools and, and the ones who run universities to recognize that this is urgently needed. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm not entirely uh, as pessimistic as the onion. I do think that there's a chance that some leaders at least can, can see the value of applying history. And certainly the Biden administration should be conscious that every time it says this is a transformational presidency comparable with uh, Franklin Roosevelt's or Lyndon Johnson's, yeah, that may be true in domestic policy. No doubt there's a bold domestic agenda, but let's not forget what those presidents also did with their presidencies. They both got into very, very big wars, uh, Roosevelt successfully, Johnson utterly unsuccessfully. And if the Biden administration isn't learning from that history, then there's something very badly wrong in Washington. I think that's all with the time we have. So I'd really like to thank you um, for joining us. My pleasure. Um, at this point, I'd like to shout out to our production team for helping us put this together. That would be Katrina Hamlin, Sharon Lamb, and Freddie Joyner. And finally, I'd like to thank you, our listener, for tuning in. Stay tuned to Breaking Views. You can check out our content at breakingviews.com. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify or iTunes or the podcast software of your choice. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. 
What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.